You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi. Producer Adrian here. Today we're bringing you a special episode of a New Statesman podcast. It's the New Statesman debate recorded live at the Cambridge Literature Festival. Hello everyone and thank you so much for coming and to everyone dialing in at home to the New Statesman debate, now a staple of the Cambridge Literary Festival calendar whose themes seem to be getting more and more pressing or perhaps depressing each year. I'm Anusha Kellyan, Britain editor of the New Statesman and I'll be chairing today's debate. Today our teams will be debating the particularly timely motion, this house believes that we get the leaders we deserve. In recent years we've witnessed the unlawful prorogation of parliament, the government insisting it would only be breaking international law in a specific and limited way. Try that one at the local police station. Public health and education debacles, rows over immigration, scandals of cronyism, wasteful spending and sleaze. And now I can add illegal parties to that list as well. A list that may get longer as we sit here in the chamber today. Um, but can such failures be traced back to the way our democracy works? An unwritten constitution, a political system that rewards ambition over integrity, leaves politicians unchecked, and all should voters and the media and others take the blame for not holding the powerful to account. Is the British electorate the helpless victim of a breed of brazen post-truth politicians, or do we simply get the leaders we deserve? Now, putting forward the case for the proposition, I'm delighted to be joined by Stephen Bush, political commentator and associate editor at the Financial Times and former political editor of The New Statesman. David Runciman, professor of politics at Cambridge University and the author of several books, including How Democracy Ends. And Hannah White, deputy director of the Institute for Government, who's worked in the Cabinet Office and the House of Commons and whose new book is called Held in Contempt, What's Wrong with the House of Commons? And making the case for the opposition, we have Billy Bragg, the singer-songwriter and activist whose most recent book is The Three Dimensions of Freedom, Dr. Rachel Clark, an NHS palliative care doctor and best-selling author whose books include Dear Life and Breathtaking, and Lucy Nessinger, the Lib Dem leader of Cambridgeshire County Council and a former member of the European Parliament. Now... Before we hear any arguments, I'm going to ask you to vote on the motion so that when we do vote at the end, we can see if they've managed to change any of your minds. Um, and after that, each speaker will make their opening case, alternating between the teams, and then I will open up to questions from the audience. So first of all, let's have a vote, and there won't be any abstentions allowed. Please, please put your hands up for 
those in favour of the motion, this House believes we get the leaders we deserve. And please leave your hands up so that our stewards can do a rough count for me so that I can compare the results at the end. And all those against? Looks quite close. All right, thank you so much. Um, so you've got a job on your hands. I'd like to introduce the proposition first. Hannah White, five minutes to make your case, and I will wave at you when you've only got a minute left. I'm glad we've got a, um, a job on our hands. I always like a challenge. Um, I'm going to start with a possibly unpopular view that um, we do get the politicians we deserve because the vast majority of politicians are honest, hardworking, public-spirited individuals who don't have to do the job they're doing. They choose to, to work on our behalf, um, and most of us wouldn't be prepared to work the hours they do to balance a constituency life um, and working in Westminster. So we do get the politicians we deserve, and we're lucky to have those politicians. And we may be happy to criticise their efforts, but we should be glad that there are people prepared to step up and do the job. But it's also true, I think, to say that people who choose to be elected as MPs are not necessarily representative of the rest of us. They tend to be more determined, <clears throat> more driven individuals because it's not easy to get yourself elected to Parliament. They tend to be risk-takers because when you're an MP, you can pretty much lose your job at any time. Potentially, they're more selfish because they're prepared to put their career, their job, ahead of that, the interests potentially of their family and their friends to get to do that job. So I think this means that in comparison to the rest of us, there may be a greater proportion of politicians who are prepared, alongside doing the things we want them to do, pursuing the causes we want them to, to pursue, they're also prepared to behave in ways we don't like and to take risks that we wouldn't want them to take. So, for example, there are politicians who are prepared to step over the line and misuse their expenses, as we saw with the MPs' expenses scandal. There are MPs who are prepared to behave in a high-handed way and bully their colleagues. There are politicians, believe it or not, who may assume that the rules do not apply to them. <laughs> but why is it our fault? Why would I say that's our fault when we get the politicians we deserve? Because we can't delegate our democracy to 650 MPs and 700 and whatever it is now, peers. We have a representative democracy, but it means, doesn't mean that we can just switch off and let them do the job. Politicians, especially elected politicians, really care what their constituents think. If they can behave in certain ways and get away with it electorally, then they'll go ahead and do so. For example, if Boris Johnson thinks he can break international law and no one will care and he will get re-elected, then he'll go ahead and do it. If Conservative MPs think that by the next election everyone will have forgotten about Partygate or that they didn't care about it in the first place, they'll probably decide to keep Boris Johnson as, as uh, Prime Minister. And there may be plenty of Boris Johnson supporters in this audience who think that would be a good outcome. But they must accept that by endorsing him as leader, they're also endorsing someone who's prepared to prorogue Parliament, someone who's prepared to break international law, and someone who thinks it's okay to attend parties during lockdown, having told the rest of us not to. If you don't want politicians to behave in the way that they do, you need to make that clear to our political class. So unless we all engage with our democracy, turn out to vote, write to our MP, support parties or support, support campaigning organisations, there's no compulsion on politicians to do anything other than behave as they see fit. 
And if we don't participate in our democracy, then it's unrealistic to complain about what politicians then do. And I'd argue too few of us do engage in that way. And it's not just those of us living in a constituency with a Conservative MP who have this responsibility. The opposition parties are also listening to what their constituents say. They say to themselves, do the public care about Partygate? Should we focus on the way that Boris Johnson has behaved? Or do we need to switch focus more and talk about the cost of living crisis? How many of their constituents are taking the trouble to engage with MPs? And that feeds into their calculation about how they themselves also should behave. So, to sum up, we may not like the politicians we have, but the behaviour of people who are in power is a direct reflection of what they think the rest of us value and are prepared to put up with. So we will always have the politicians we deserve. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah. And now the opening case for the opposition, Lucy Nettersinger. It's great to be here um, in this room. I, having lived in Cambridgeshire for 15 years now, I'm ashamed to say this is my first time here and it's mildly terrifying. So um, <laughs> I hope you'll all be nice. Um, and to, welcome to everyone at home. Um, as one of the politicians Hannah is praising, I'm grateful for her positive words about politicians. And I do recognise that many politicians, especially in, in local government, are hardworking and well-motivated. But we're not talking about politicians. We're talking about leaders and leadership. Friends, I think we can agree that all good decision-making requires accurate and sufficient information on which to base a decision. While in a democracy, we have the privilege of voting for or against a particular leader. If the information on which we base that decision is inadequate or flawed, then the decision-making is also likely to be flawed. If we were to agree that people get the leaders that they deserve, that would require that they not only have the means of choosing their leaders, but also the information needed to make a reasonably informed choice. I will argue that our current political structures are not giving people, either here or in other countries, the reliable, accurate information that they need in order to make the informed decisions that would give them the leaders they deserve. To demonstrate how crucial that information is, I want to tell you about some conversations I had this week in Brussels. I was speaking at an event on media freedom with some colleagues who have been involved in the recent elections in Hungary. They explained how over the past two years, 500 small local newspapers in Hungary have been bought up by various different companies. 500 small, previously independent sources of news and information moved from locally owned companies to international companies. Then, all on the same day, all these newspapers were given to a think tank which is closely allied to the governing Fidesz party of Viktor Orban. 500 small local newspapers previously reporting relatively reliably on local news are now under the control of a single think tank. The people in Hungary went to vote in their elections, but the information on which they based their votes was controlled by the governing party. The opposition parties had little access to un unbiased media outlets. And this is a very recent election in a European country. Of course, newspapers are not the only source of information. With the growth of widespread internet access, there is a plethora of sources of information. But that information is not always reliable, as I imagine us, all of us here are well aware. A major issue for people making choices about their leaders is which information to trust. This has become increasingly difficult as technology has changed the ways in which news and information is distributed and regulated. I would guess that if I were to ask this room 
which sources of information people consider trustworthy, I would get a considerable variety of opinion, even in this well-educated and informed company. I will not argue that leadership doesn't matter. Of course, it is crucially important. Leaders such as Barack Obama, Emmanuel Macron, Vladimir Putin or Donald Trump are gifted communicators and have huge influence in the world. Leaders like Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk have an equally large impact. And I realised later that this is a list of men. The same is also true of Angela Merkel, Margaret Thatcher, Jacinta Ardern, Greta Thunberg, Rosa Park. All these leaders, however, operate within a given political, social and economic structure. And until we believe that system is unbiased and gives all voices an equal chance of being heard, I do not believe that we can say the people get the leaders they deserve. It's at the end. <laughs> I'll stop there then. <laughs> Thank, you, Thank you, Lucy. Thank you very much. And the next case for the proposition, Stephen Bush. Thank you. I think, firstly, we should start by acknowledging that while you'll hear lots from my side of this argument about how politics could be better and how we have an obligation to get involved and make it better, we should first acknowledge that actually politics isn't all bad now. The era of the prorogation is also the era of the furlough. The era of a government which refuses to admit fault for anything is also the era that gave us no-fault divorce, a much more humane way for a marriage which has reached its end to exit, although you may think that this Prime Minister in particular has a vested interest. Yeah, the political class that gave us lockdown-breaching politicians gave us a Welsh First Minister who spent the whole of the pandemic running the country from his shed because his wife is immunocompromised. So I think that the danger of arguments like this is that, yeah, and indeed, the victory of Boris Johnson is the triumph of low expectations. It's this idea that, yeah, well, they're all rubbish. The politicians we've got are pretty bad, so you might as well have the guy who's fun. But actually, the politicians we have are not all rubbish, not least when you widen and think about politicians who aren't just the ones sitting in the House of Commons. But, you know, Marcus Rashford, who I hope in the 20 minutes since I checked the Arsenal school has not come on and done anything that I will, uh, that will cause me pain. But Marcus Rashford is a politician. The head of Oxfam is a politician. And that is the... That is a political class and didn't just emerge from the ether. That is a political class that you, we have created together. And that collective endeavour is something that we should believe in and we shouldn't snipe at it, diminish it, just because we're sick of, to use a phrase of a previous Prime Minister, the effing Tories. You know, we should gain real hope from the fact that we still live in a country in which political disputes are resolved without violence, in which an argument over whether or not one part of the country remains in the United Kingdom is debated at the ballot box... Like, these are not small things, right? And we, we shouldn't, um, you know, we shouldn't dim- diminish or dismiss them um, because one of the reasons why our political class sometimes throws out, throws out the, uh, the odd inferior product is because doing politics sucks. You, lo- you lose all the time, whether you lose internally or externally. Even if you voted for this government to have you know, lower taxes and enter everyone talking about Brexit all the time, honest politicians, you've kind of lost a little bit. And I think that every time we talk about politics as something that's failed, we make it less attractive. We make it less attractive for people to go into it. We make it more attractive for it to become a domain of shysters. So I would say, yes, we do get the politicians we deserve. And for the most part, we should still be proud of that.
And next for the opposition, Rachel Clark. Well, it's ironic, isn't it, that we're debating this particular motion at the end of this particular week. I mean, if the motion's true, then we, the electorate, deserve no better as our political leader than a serial liar who writes laws, breaks them, lies about them, abuses parliamentary privilege to double down on those lies, and then looks a national television broadcaster in the eye, this is Beth Rigby of Sky News yesterday, and actually says without a shred of shame, I have absolutely nothing to hide. Today's newspapers, you probably have seen, um, have published the latest instalment in Partygate. And this is, of course, the round of fines, not for the birthday party, but for the number 10 drinks party. And I thought it would be useful to just quote these words from Martin Reynolds, Johnson's principal private secretary, when he sent out his invites to that garden party. After what has been an incredibly busy period, it would be nice to make the most of the lovely weather and have some socially distant drinks, socially distanced, sorry, drinks in the number 10 garden this evening. Please do join us from 6 p.m. and bring your own booze. I would like you all, please, to just cast your minds back to two years ago when that email was sent. Back then, April, May 2020, it was a time of great fear. We had no COVID vaccines, we had no COVID treatments. I was one of thousands of frontline NHS staff members who was going into work every day at that time, knowing that I was risking my life to do so. We had fellow doctors, nurses, carers in the intensive cares of our hospitals, ventilated and dying of COVID. And as well as the fear, the sheer inhumanity of trying to practice medicine under those conditions was hellish. And I don't use that word as an exaggeration. To know that there were barriers, physical barriers of PPE between you and your patients, to know that loved ones obeyed the rules so graciously and understandingly and selflessly at home, not there at the bedsides of their loved ones who were dying, was heartbreaking. It was unimaginable. And perhaps the, the, the first thing that I realised on, on day one of practising as a pandemic doctor was the enormity of the fact that anyone who came into hospital and died literally never saw a human face again. For the rest of their life, it was covered up by PPE. But we did all of that just fine because it was our job and we stepped up. What wasn't fine, though, not remotely fine, was having to constantly try and counter a stream of lies from our political leaders, our government, about this pandemic from the word go. Matt Hancock standing up and telling the nation there are no problems with PPE, or Johnson wanging on about world-beating test and trace when we had doctors and nurses who were off for weeks at a time because there weren't tests for them to get tested. This motion is wrong because it demands that the public are responsible not only for doing their jobs and informing themselves about politics, but also judging the veracity of what our politicians claim. It says that in an age of disinformation, the onus is on us, the public, to sift truth from lies, even as our elected representatives are doing the lying. 
And no, I'm sorry, the public deserves so much better than that. If 1.3 million people in the NHS can step up, step up and behave with more decency and strength and courage throughout the last two years than I ever knew possible, why the hell can't our politicians? I want the government to do the same. Position, David Runciman. <laughs> yeah. um, so after that round of applause, I'm not going to try and defend uh, this government or, or Partygate. We were already losing. Um, this is a debate about political leadership. I think we should accept that. So this is not just about the political class as a whole. And I'm sure many of us had the thought in 2019, uh, when there was a general election, that there are 67 million people in this country and the choice that we were given for the person to lead it was between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn. And the thought was, isn't there anyone better? <laughs> Two out of 67 million? And yet, as we've heard, the truth is it's not out of 67 million. It's out of that tiny, tiny portion of us, and it really is tiny, who are willing to do this for a living, for better or for worse. That's the secret of our representative democracy, the reason it works the way it does is because it doesn't require us to do politics. And most of us, I speak for myself, take huge advantage of that. It is a great blessing not to spend your days and your nights thinking about politics. We're not some heroic ancient democracy where politics is our day-to-day -day business. To be citizens of a state like ours is to have the enormous privilege of not having to do it, which means we do get a narrow and slightly odd selection of people who do choose to do it. And it's not just that. So in 2019, the reason those were the two candidates was because they had been chosen by the members of their parties. So that's not a massive threshold, right, to join a political party. And I'm sure many people in this room are members of political parties. But we still have to remember that is a tiny, tiny portion of the population. Most people, and I think completely understandably, don't even want to make that commitment. Not just that it's too much trouble, it's not a lot of fun. So we get the politicians who are left, and then we're disappointed by them, unsurprisingly. We wish they were better. We kind of think, why don't they change? You know, they arrive at these positions of leadership, Jeremy Corbyn, Boris Johnson, we invest these hopes in them, and then they disappoint us by turning out to be exactly the people we knew they were all along. <laughs> you know, even Dominic Cummings expressed surprise the day after he got Boris Johnson elected that he wasn't up to the job. <laughs> We know who they are. It's like going into a relationship and thinking that the other person will change. They won't. They're not going to change just because they're now in a relationship with us. Theresa May, when she became Prime Minister, people said, when are we going to find out who the real Theresa May is? She seemed so closed off and reluctant to give her views and cautious. That was the real Theresa May. We'd known it all along. They are who they are. We know it. And yet we say, why aren't they someone different? And then we say... If only there were someone else in place, it would all be all right again. And I think this is the big mistake that we all make, which is thinking the next election will sort it. If only we could get Boris or Jeremy in. It's true in the United States. If only Trump was gone. It doesn't change because what determines the politics we have is the system that we have. And we spend too much time complaining about the people and not enough time thinking about the system. We have a system that is designed to encourage them to make promises they won't keep to get elected. 
and then create structures of power that makes them relatively unaccountable. We don't vote for leaders. We vote for MPs who then, you know, the parties pick the leaders, but the MPs keep them in place. It's an indirect system. It doesn't require enough of us. And then we complain and we say the next lot will be better, and then we're disappointed that they're not. So if I had a magic wand that I could wave over politics, this is what I would do. I would introduce a system that says you can vote on a ballot paper for none of the above, right? So there's a none of the above box. And then if none of the above wins, which might well happen, I mean, none of the above has to win, then everyone, this little number, everyone who voted none of the above goes into a big pile. You pull one out. You are now the member of parliament for Cambridge. That is the ancient way of doing democracy. You pick people by lot. I suspect none of the above would sweep to power. And then we would have a different set of people as politicians. And then we would get a sense of what it's really like. It's not going to happen, but until we're willing to at least say, let's do it differently, we are going to get the politicians we deserve. If we just fixate on replacing this person with that person, we will carry on being disappointed. If we're not willing to take risks with the system, I don't think we can spend our time saying the next lot are going to be better, because they won't. And lastly, for the opposition, Billy Bragg. Thank you. The none of the above idea, we've been hearing it for years and years, and it's a lovely idea in a pub on a Friday night, but it wouldn't work because none of the above would be forced out by the system. Jeremy Corbyn was none of the above. He was the most none of the above leader of a political party we have ever had. And what happened to him? His own political party refused to accept the legitimacy that the membership of the party had put onto him. And they threw him out. Never mind Murdoch's papers and the Tories. The system itself spews out none of the above. And over the past decade, the, the voters have been trying to tell us that there's something wrong with the system that we're using. You know, the, the votes really since 2010, votes have gone consistently against the Westminster way of doing things. The, the um, hung parliament in 2010, the rise of the SNP, the Brexit referendum, another hung parliament uh, in, in 2017, and ultimately the um, election of a prime minister who clearly is the antithesis of what Westminster thinks it's about. Now, you know, I would suggest the root of this problem lies in the method by which we elect our MPs. It amazes me to think that universal suffrage only uh, happened in this country in 1928, in my father's lifetime. It's incredible to imagine that. But also, what seems to have happened in 1928 is the entire system stopped at Westminster, not just the way we vote, but the way Westminster works, apart from a few cosmetic changes, stopped in 1928, as if the British uh, um, uh, Parliament had decided that we've now got a perfect way to elect people. We don't need any more modifications. That's it. And when you think of the modifications that had happened in the previous 100 years, from 1828 until 1928, it's amazing that we're still using that same kind of system uh, that they brought us in, uh, in 1928 to... It's as if, almost as if uh, time has, has stood still. And the defenders of the first-past-the-post system argue that it brings great stability. Well, that's certainly true where I live in West Dorset. The Tories have had that constituency since 1888. <laughs> and you laugh, but where I come from in Barking in East London, they've had a Labour MP since 1928. And don't tell me there ain't no Tories in Barking, because some of them are my relatives. <laughs> so, you know, the fact that 
that very few MPs receive more than 50% of support uh, in their constituency means that the majority of our votes go straight into the bin. You know, and, and for voters feel they, they have no say in the running of the country. The uh, BBC did a YouGov poll in 2018 that asked people in England if they thought they could influence how local decisions were made. 74% of those asked said they felt they had very little control or none whatsoever. Now, these are starting, startling figures which suggest that our democracy is not as representative as it could be. The first step, obviously, here to give some sense of agency to electors would be to introduce some form of proportional representation. While that wouldn't so solve... Thank you. While that wouldn't solve all of our problems, uh, it may at least uh, go some way to ensuring that if the British electorate um, may still get the politicians they deserve, but at least they will get p politicians that the majority of them actually want. Thank you. Hello, it's Alva here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. At the moment, you can subscribe from £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. From The New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said, on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Mardwe screamed back, who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thank you to all of our speakers and now I'm going to take questions from the audience. Please wait for the microphone to get to you so that our viewers uh, listening at home can hear your question and I'll take questions in threes so that we can get through as many as we can and if your question is for a specific speaker do let me know because I'll put it to them if so. All right, uh, hands up for questions. Thank you. My question's to do with proportional representation. I think it was 2011 we had the country's second referendum which was to do with alternative representation. Uh, 
proportional representation. It wasn't a perfect system, but unfortunately, uh, those proponents lost heavily and the turnout was abysmal. Can anybody enlighten me as to why that was the fact? We were given the chance, but we let it slip. Thank you. And that second question over here. Uh, I'm Stephen Dorrell. I was an inmate in this system as a Tory MP for 36 years, uh, saw the light and joined the Liberal Democrats. Um, what, uh, what was striking to me from the introductions was that David Runciman and Billy Bragg were both on the same square, which I agree with, which we get the politicians that the system makes inevitable. Uh, and I wonder whether we've got something to learn from other countries, and I'm thinking particularly of Germany, about the way they've learnt they need to elect their leaders. And the third question was in the second row here. It was the same as the other two questions. <laughs> Great. All right. Well, Billy, you mentioned um, voting systems, so I wonder if you wanted to come in first on the question about the AV referendum. Yeah, the AV referendum wasn't a really a proportional system. I, I wasn't too happy with it, although I voted for it. But we've come a long way since then. Um, at the last Labour Party conference, 80% of Labour Party branches put forward motions demanding proportional representation. And although it didn't pass, I think that pressure is remaining simply because, uh, you know, with the loss of Scotland, the Labour Party is going to find it very difficult. So uh, it's a shame it's taken that to focus the minds of, of the Labour Party onto something like proportional representation. But I do think it's definitely the way forward for restoring people's sense of, of some agency over their, their politicians. And David, I saw you wanted to yeah, come I mean, in. So we did, yeah, I was struck by the fact we're on the opposite sides and we completely agree on this. But as that <laughs> question suggested, the problem is that maybe Labour members are pushing for this, as I said before, but Labour members are not the public. And these questions are not high on the broader political agenda, partly because we're so fixated on leadership. So we spend so much time thinking about if only it wasn't this person but that person. We ourselves don't put enough pressure on politicians to change this system. It wasn't a perfect offer in 2011, but it was decisively rejected. It did not engage people's attention. And the hardest thing in politics is to get people to recognise it's not the personalities, it's the system that's producing these outcomes. And until we push that argument, we will carry on getting the politicians we deserve. The biggest, you know, uh, hugest enthusiasm for a turnout in the last 50 years, the Brexit referendum. Yeah. And why was that? It was because people knew that if they cast a vote, something would happen. Yeah. And what we're trying to do is get people to believe that when they pull a lever or put a mark on a piece of paper, they get a result from that. Yeah. And propor proportional representation is the first step. It's not the solution, but it's the first step yeah, in that process. We agree, but until that becomes a popular movement, we are going to carry on with this kind of politics. And so that is on us. It really is on us. Lucy. I'm going to pick up on Stephen's argument about um, the German constitution. Um, having spent a, a, a sadly rather too short time in Europe and, and thinking about European politics, um, I think that the way in which um, politics, well, the way in which politics is done in the European Union and, and in the European Parliament is a really interesting example about how if you have a different system, you get a different type of debate and a different way of doing politics in that the, the um, mechanisms in the European Parliament make politicians look for consensus and agreement rather than constantly driving them to look for disagreement and, uh, and find the places where there is the maximum um, argument. And, and the German system helps with that. It's quite a um, 
diverse system where, where power is much more distributed, where you don't have enormous amounts of power vested in one person. And that means that anybody who wants to lead has to find consensus and has to get people to agree with them. Um, and that leads to a different type of leader and a different type of political debate. And I think that that's something that our country probably would really like. Just to come back to the point about the AV referendum, I think with, with an awful lot of systems, um, you have to demonstrate that they're broken before people really want to change them. And, and the German constitution, the German written constitution was brought in after the Second World War with quite a lot of help from the British, ironically, um, after the Germans had broken their system. Um, I think it's taken quite a long time for people in this country to come to the conclusion that our system is broken. I don't think they necessarily thought that at the time of the AV referendum. I think now there may be a number of other people who, who think that increasingly. And one of the reasons for that is that more and more people are disillusioned with the two main parties. Um, but nevertheless, for smaller parties, I mean, the SNP is doing very well. Obviously, it's, it's geographically located in Scotland, so it has a density of vote in one geographical location. But the number of MP, of the number of votes you need to get to get one green MP rep, um, in Parliament is is bonkers, given the number of people who are actually voting for that. And I think our our system looks increasingly broken. And as it looks increasingly broken, I think the the um, public requirement for change will become louder. I certainly hope so. Thank you. And I'm going to take three more questions. I can see a hand up there in the gallery. Very respectfully, with David Runciman, he spoke brilliantly. Uh, I think there has been a sea change. Um, I think the best political leaders encourage us or inspire us to be better than we are. And I think there's been a sea change. There's a new era of sort of demagoguery, of, of, of demotic politics, which appeals to the worst instincts in us, our otherness, tribalism, envy, this sort of thing. And, and, and we've seen the rise of political leaders brought to power on, on, on that kind of groundswell all across the world. So I don't think it's just about a, one character is as good or bad as the next. I think there has been a sea change. I don't know why, but I, I, I think I disagree, therefore. <laughs> Thank you. And um, I think there's a, yeah, a question up there. Clearly, we need to do something drastic. And I would have thought one thing we could, obviously, we could try would be to make voting mandatory. So can you put that in a question then? What, what do I, what, we'll ask Afro what we think um, about making voting mandatory. And then the third question up here. The system and voting and representation. But we know that isn't the whole system. So we can't, I suppose we have a political system that we see on the TV. But then behind closed doors, a lot of different things happen. We have three-line whips where they make a note of the, the whip and um, how people have voted. So I suppose, how do we get to the system we, divert, we deserve? Is it just changing the voting system? How do we get there? And that might be quite a broad question, but... Um. No, thank you so much. Okay, um, would anyone like to comment on making voting mandatory? Would that make our politicians people that we deserve? <laughs> Our politician in the room wants to answer that if one. I was, I was out door knocking this morning. I don't think we should make door voting <laughs> mandatory. Um, I, I just think that um, I'm, I'm a liberal. I'm not particularly in favour of making many things mandatory, actually. But, but if people are really not interested, they really don't think that they're well informed, even if you make them go to the voting booth, if they just put their box, tick in a box completely randomly, you haven't gained anything. What I do think we need is to, to make 
engaging people who are disengaged from society a much higher priority and, and trying to get more people engaged in politics. We've all talked about joining political parties. Of course, I'd love more people to join political parties. Um, I also think we should have people voting at 16. I think there are really good reasons why, actually, if you were voting when you were still in full-time education for the first time, it would be really helpful to get people engaged in politics. But I don't think making it compulsory would help any of us. It's also true. It's compulsory in Australia they're having an election in Australia now, we could be having this debate in Australia, they would be just as disillusioned with their political <laughs> class, if not more so, because they're Australians. <laughs> and, and Hannah, as you worked as a clerk in the House of Commons and in the Cabinet Office as well, I wanted you to come in on that question about, you know, the real politics happens behind closed doors and we don't necessarily have all the information about it. I mean, would making that process more transparent help us? Yeah, well, I mean, at risk of arguing against my side. I, <laughs> um, you know, I do think that the, the House of Commons is a really, you know, like a closed box, and it's sometimes really hard to know what's going on and, and how the system works, and you can see that from a um, recent incident where, you know, suddenly we were all talking about how the whips work, and uh, William Ragg had sort of raised this question of, you know, were people being the dark arts of the whips telling people how, how to vote? But at the end of the day, the House of Commons works like that because nobody challenges it. When he said that and came out in public and said, look, I don't think this is right, maybe people who've you know, been strong-armed by the whip should go to the police, everyone was like, oh, um, well, you know, we, didn't, we didn't know that was how it, how it worked. And you know, it's only when these things see, see the light and there's public pressure to change them that that will happen. So I think, you know, it's no good for us to just say, oh, isn't it awful that, the, that you know, the House of Commons works in ways we don't understand. Then we need to put pressure on politicians to say, look, explain this to us, simplify the system, don't use all this arcane language so people like me have to go on TV and sort of tell everyone what's happening. But they're not going to do it unless there's pressure on them to do it because it's not a priority for them. They understand it, the system works for them. There are loads of vested interests. So why would you expect anyone to do anything different? Respect to use a very politician word. That, that is exactly why the motion that you're arguing for is wrong. Because if we don't, if it, the public does not have the intellectual bandwidth to be understanding the arcane workings of the House of Commons, sifting through the truth and lies, trying to adjudicate and figure out which of the current compulsive liars in government <laughs> are perhaps maybe on one occasion telling the truth about just one issue. Um, how can you do that when you are already working and pouring all your time and energy into being a nurse or a doctor or a teacher or an academic or wondering about how on earth you are going to put food on the table for your kids or pay this winter's gas bill. There is no bandwidth for people to be trying to assess and appraise the veracity of our broken political system while actually carrying on with everyday lives. And I would suggest that anybody who does have the time and space to do that is someone who either does it as a job because they're a journalist, for instance, or they're in an incredibly privileged position. You know, maybe a lot of us sitting in this room because we've got the time and the money to buy tickets to come to a new statesman debate about the politicians we deserve. The vast number of people in the country don't have that luxury, and yet 
you're talking about um, delegating democracy and the fact that we, the public, must not do that, that somehow the onus is on the public. It's our responsibility to work to get better politicians. How can you stand a chance of doing that when you're trying to just get on with everyday life at the same time? Well, before we... I know Billy wants to come in, but before we come to him... <laughs> Stephen, you... You do do this as a job. I wonder if you have any arguments against what Rachel's just been saying. Well, uh, I think in some ways that the underlying problem is from how you talk, you'd think that the last century had been one of unending failure and retreat and not one in which, you know, British politics gave us the Equality Act, the NHS, um, the Open University, um, you know, and those are just kind of the three things off the top of my head, you know, which gave us proportional representation in two devolved parliaments, proportional representation in the London Assembly. Right? It, I just think one of the reasons why I think the argument that is, is actively a bit dangerous, right, is you talk as if democratic politics um, you know, is this kind of unending and awful failure just because some recent elections have produced an outcome you don't like. Well, we see in France where they are, you know, essentially one bad day away from a, a literal fascist taking office, um, that when you talk about democracy in this kind of casually sort of derogatory way, I think that's quite dangerous, right? Then we should be clear that people, you know, people who, you know, are tired, who, you know, come from backgrounds and aren't privileged, do take the time and the bandwidth to change their politics. That, that has been the foundation of every positive social change in this country, and then when we look at things in this country that are falling short, I don't think that we should, we should, sort of, we, we should ab abdicate our responsibility. I think we should say, look, the only way that this is going to be fixed is by ourselves. Thank you. And Billy and then Lucy. Well, the, the fix, I think, really, the, the politicians at Westminster need is competition. We in England live in the most centralised state in Europe. It's impossible for... Um, uh, British people to vote in elections in a proportional way, English people to vote in elections in a proportional way that gives them some kind of representation. You've seen how, uh, you mentioned Mark Drayford, you know, the Welsh uh, First Minister, the, how, what profile he's had showing the way that politics is done differently. Likewise, Nicola Sturgeon. So you would imagine that comes some sort of devolved, maybe de if not, I'm not a fan of an English parliament because I think it would give London and the South East even more power than it has at the moment, but regional assemblies that bring uh, uh, politics closer to people with proportional representation in elections would help. And what's happening at the moment, though, is, is that the Tories are trying to change the election of the, the city mayors from proportional representation back to first past the post because they're not getting the kind of results they want. That's what we're up against. That's where the real problem is. Thank you. And Lucy, you wanted to come in and then I'll take some more questions. Thank you. Um, just, I just wanted to respond very quickly on the, um, the, the conversations in private rooms. I do think it's important for, com for politicians to be allowed to have conversations in private rooms. As somebody who is currently running a, a coalition, I need to be able to have private conversations sometimes with my Labour and independent colleagues that are not going to be transparent and public, because sometimes we have rows and we need to do that sometimes in private. However... I think the thing that we, um, that needs to be recognised, but, but we also need to recognise the absolutely toxic impact that large amounts of money are having in our political system. And, and the power of the whips in the House of Commons at the moment is very significantly because the, of the way in which our political system is funded or not funded. Um, and in a, in, a, in a political funding environment where actually the amount of money that a national party can spend is almost limitless, 
um, and, and the checks on where that money comes from are very small, and that money is controlled particularly by Conservative Central Office. The power that Conservative Central Office has over their MPs and over those MPs' future careers is enormous. And it abso it's absolutely corrosive in our politi political environment. And again, if we can look to Europe to see different ways of fun funding politics, there are different ways of doing it. We definitely need to change the way in which the funding of political parties is done in this country because it is having an absolutely corrosive effect on the politics. Thank you. So we've got three more questions, one here, one there, and then there's a lady who put her hand up at, um, near the back as well, if we could get a mic to her. So, um, Yeah, hi. Um, so you talked about the potential of uh, changing a voting system to help uh, ensure we get the politicians we deserved, but I was also wondering, do you think that potentially the creation of some sort of codified constitution would help us get the politicians we deserve, and do you think that it might also potentially mean that we can get rid of them a bit easier if, <laughs> if we're not happy with the politicians that we get? Thank you. Second question over here, I think. Um, I think one of the things that hasn't been mentioned at all is about education for children, about what our, what our citizenship is and what our parliamentary system is. I would hazard a guess that virtually everybody in, the, in this audience had, if not some school education about that, but probably gone into higher education, that you're highly literate people. I taught um, in schools for 20 years and I saw gradually, over the last few years, the way that it's become more and more difficult to teach kids about politics. And unless kids understand what the system is, they're not going to leave school understanding what the system is. So, to me, I think that's absolutely fundamental. Thank you. That there is proper education about our system. Thanks And without much. it, you can't expect people to make informed choices because they don't know what the hell the bloody system is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And the third question, please. So my question is regarding this notion of deservance, right? The idea that the election of our politicians, since it's our responsibility, therefore somehow grants us a moral failing, a moral justification for them to be awful to us, right? This notion that because our politicians are, well, simply because we are allocated a certain, albeit incredibly limited, amount of engagement with the political system, that we are somehow, like, that their treatment of us is somehow morally justified, that we are somehow... Uh, well, because deservance is fundamentally a moral issue, right? This idea that you are, well, that the fate that you receive is just in some way. So my question really is how does the fact that we, like how does our, the apathy of large sections of the population, people who are disillusioned in the kind of arguably trite that our politicians seek to offer us instead of things that would actually meaningfully improve people's lives, how does the fact that our politics doesn't inspire engagement cause us, the suffering that we endure under it, to be justified? 
Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, we've only got five minutes left, so I want to take just sort of one point on each of those questions. Is anyone particularly passionate about a codified constitution or indeed passionate against one? Billy. A constitution is a set of rules by which we consent to be governed. The fact that we have an unwritten constitution is an anomaly. We are one of the very few democracies that doesn't have a document that begins, we the people. In order to deal with these problems, whether it's proportional representation, a, uh, a, a genuinely elected second chamber, a set of clear constitutional protections. I mean, you know, you can change the constitution with the majority in the House of Commons. That doesn't seem to me much of a protection. We need a constitutional convention. We need all the parties to come together to sit down and to listen to citizens, to ask them how a constitution would better serve them and everything to be on the table, devolution right across the board. That's how they did it in Scotland. They got to a consensus. It kind of works for them and we should do the same. Thank you. And Hannah, you wanted to come in. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree with you in, in, in many ways that like a constitutional convention that got lots of people engaged, if you designed it right, wouldn't be an easy thing to do, but would be really desirable. But I do think it's dangerous to tell ourselves that writing everything down is going to solve these, these issues. Actually, a lot of our constitution is already written down. It's written down in things like the ministerial code and so on. Um, and it doesn't stop politicians sort of thinking about, well, if this is the letter of the rule, how can I get round it? Actually, what I would argue we, we want is a class of politicians who think through the principles of what they are trying to do and should be doing, rather than, I mean, and I'm just saying, the risk of seeing a constitution as the answer is, it doesn't, it, it, is the sense that that might take away their responsibility to, to think that through and to take responsibility for it the themselves. The Bill of Rights is it because it belongs to the citizenry, not to the politicians. You're asking for a football match with no referee. The Constitution is the referee. And if the people understand what the way the Constitution formalises the way politics is done, they can see when people are offside. David. Can I take the yeah. children question? Yes, please. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm one of those people... So Billy said we've got universal suffrage, but we don't because a fifth of the population are disenfranchised children. So I'm one of those people who believes that the voting age should be six, not 16. <laughs> right. And so everybody laughs. So we're not going to debate the merits of this now, but what I'm struck by the last few years I've been trying to make this case is people on the one hand believe our politics is broken, it's a mess, and on the other hand this would be a horrifying, dangerous idea. And I kind of feel you can't have it both ways. You know, there is this idea that somehow our system will correct itself if we can just get the right people in place. We've got to take some risks with it, we've got to open it up. There's a good reason for allowing children to vote. I don't think it would do any harm. And yet there's this small-c conservatism about a system that people on the whole don't like. I think we will carry on getting the leaders we deserve unless, unless we're willing to take some chances with it. So do you think that would improve politi political education for school children, as this teacher was Yeah, the best way, about? the best way to get people involved in politics is to let them be involved in politics. Does anyone else want to come in on the education question? Lucy. Very briefly, um, I wrote quite a lot of the um, Lib Dems' current education policy. The number of things that people want to squeeze into the curriculum for children is limitless, and teachers cannot <laughs> do it all. We shouldn't just be talking about children who need education. Actually, we need to talk about educating the whole population, and we need to really think about ways in which we can encourage those who are furthest from engagement with politics to get more interested, because those are the people who are... The ones who don't vote are the ones who nearly always do the worst out of our political system, and we've got to try and encourage them to get involved. I'm not convinced that talking to them when they're at school is necessarily the best way. Many of those people are not listening when they're at school. 
Thank you. And what do you make of this third question? Do we really deserve these subpar politicians just because we're apathetic? Stephen, do you want to come in on that one? Well, so I, I and you know, like most people in this country, I live somewhere where the last time there was a meaningful vote to change the MP was the last time the Labour Party selected a candidate there because it's a very safe seat, which in our case was 1987. Um, so I don't think I necessarily deserve the, the choices on offer, but you know I choose not to be a member of a political party, right? I choose not to participate fully in the the the, the civic life of, of my local borough, and I therefore do have a degree of responsibility for what happens in politics in that area. And I think the danger of the idea that politics is something which is done to us that we therefore don't deserve is it encourages more apathy, and it's exactly true to say that the people who do worst out of politics are the people who don't vote. One of the reasons why I think uh, compulsive voting is a bad idea, though, is it means that instead of you having to appeal to people who don't vote, you can just guarantee that they'll be forced to turn up anyway. Okay, thank you. And Rachel, this kind of comes back to your point, doesn't it, that the people, perhaps some of your patients, they just don't have time in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And perhaps more fundamentally, I think what's been missing in the entire debate so far, actually, is... Um, a, an interrogation of, of what the word leader actually means here. So, so leaders are meant to be the best of us. They are meant to represent us. They are meant to lead by example. And therefore, anybody who is one of our political leaders, particularly if they're a member of government, should, by definition to be someone we look up to. And I know you can say that's hopelessly naive and maybe anachronistic and foolish, but actually, I don't think it's any of those things for me as a citizen to want leaders that I can look up to. And, and this isn't a matter of party politics, Stephen, because there are individuals on, in all the political parties who I can look up to and many who I don't. But fundamentally at the moment, we have a government and a prime minister whose example is one of deceit and dishonesty and insincerity and playing to the crowd and riding roughshod over not just political principle, but morality as well. And the, the notion that the British electorate deserves that is just woefully and absolutely wrong. I want leaders who lead by example. If we can have them in the NHS, in education, in Cambridge University, in our, in our media, because those leaders are there, why can't we have them in the House of Commons as well? Thank you. So I'm afraid that's all the audience questions we have time for. Thank you so much for them. And now I'm going to hand over to one member of each side to give their summarising arguments. I think Stephen is doing that for the proposition. Stephen. So the, the last political campaign I was involved in as a campaigner rather than a journalist was, as it happens, the AV referendum. So in some ways, I guess I am to blame. Um, a result which went so badly that I decided I need to give up political uh, campaigning. Um, but look, there's a serious point here, which is that I remember in that campaign, you know, the, the biggest problem we had campaigning for, for the alternative vote, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't whatever imperfections that system may have had. It was Nick Clegg. For many people, they saw that referendum first and foremost as a chance to kick Nick Clegg. 
And as a result of that decision, we lost at a scale that may have shut off the conversation about electoral reform in this country for a very, very long time because we decided to have a debate not about systems but about individuals. I think we absolutely have a political system in, badly in need of system, systematic change. We badly need a more representative electoral system. We badly need to enfranchise all our citizens, including the very, very young. Um, and we badly need um, you know, to put more resources and prestige into politics. But I think if you vote for this motion, ultimately, I think we're voting to make the same mistake that people made in 2011, to put their anger at individuals over the question of whether or not the system is something we can change together. So that is why ultimately I still believe that we do get the politicians we deserve. That is one of the, for me, one of the sources of optimism I still have about democratic politics, that when we come together, we can make a better world. So please do vote for the proposition. Thank you. Thank you. And Lucy, summing up for the opposition. Thank you. Uh, those in favour of the motion have argued that not all politicians are dreadful, and I agree. <laughs> they have also argued that we as a population have some responsibility for the politics of our country, and again, I agree. However, that is not an argument to say that we get the leaders we deserve. There are honourable politicians and leaders in all parties, but the leadership we have in this country at the moment is that of Boris Johnson, and I simply cannot accept that that is the leadership that our country deserves. <laughs> If we had a press and media and online information landscape where people had reliable access to unbiased coverage, if we had a voting system which reflected the way in which people actually voted rather than the first-past-the-post system, which doesn't, it might be perhaps possible to argue that people could be held more responsible. But we do not have those things. Our current political leadership in this country is dreadful. I feel incredibly frustrated and angry at the series of events which have brought this wonderful country to this point of shame and embarrassment. But I do not believe that the British people deserve the charlatan we currently have as our leader. I believe passionately that he must go, but when he goes, we must not relax. We must look long and hard at our political system which allowed him to come to power and which is leaving so many in our wealthy country struggling to feed their families and heat their homes. Until we have a political system which is not rigged in favour of the wealthy, the well-connected and vested interests, we cannot really validly argue that the people get the leaders they deserve. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, have they changed anyone's mind? Um, let's vote again. So, all those in favour of the motion, this House believes we get the leaders we deserve, please raise your hands and keep them raised so that our stewards can do another count. All right. Um, and all those against, please raise your hands. The results are in. Um, so, for the opening vote that you did before you heard the debate, for the ayes it was 130 and for the noes 166. And for the closing vote on the motion, this House believes that we get the leaders we deserve. The ayes were 71 and the noes were 223. So the noes have it. <laughs> Thank you.
So congratulations to the opposition, but thank you so much for all of our speakers for taking the time to make your cases so articulately, and also to the audience for your questions, and everyone watching via the live stream at home. Thank you so much for coming. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with Anusha Kellyan and produced by me, Adrian Bradley. Our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. The team will be back later this week for a look ahead to the local elections, so do get your questions in to podcast at newstatesman.co.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.